This morning, continuing in the book of James, we're in chapter 3. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to chapter 3, we're in verses 13 through 18. Here, James continues his, his theme on wise living, living wisely in a consistent way, and how that benefits the body. Let's read these verses, 13 through 18. He writes, Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Not everyone in the church to whom James writes has pure intentions. Clearly, by way of what he's already written, a number of them don't. Some would try to take the upper hand over others to assert their way of fable. In our day, many in the church really for a very long time, for a very long time, seem to, to come to gather out of a, a mere sense of duty. To gather here, for example, but to gather in churches out of mere sense of duty, thus, I would argue, lacking a humbling fear of God. Not understanding their full, complete need of Jesus. The Bible tells us that it is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. Now, for, for many in the church, they were brought up in homes where going to church was required. They may say that it was their duty to go to church. Now, that's a good thing. It is a blessing to be brought up in a home like this. I hope in your homes, and I suspect it is for most of you, that this is a requirement in your home. It is an act of obedience. However, gathering for public worship out of just a recognized duty, because that is what a person has always done. And in fact, sometimes having his eye on his watch the entire time, that duty that's being fulfilled, it's not likely being done from a proper fear of God, from a proper love of him. And the lack of the fear of God displays a sore need for wisdom. Now, I say all this, beloved, just to give an example, just to give an example of how we may think that we walk in true wisdom, but in fact are just trying to get in, getting by by a fake or false wisdom. We are susceptible to this. Everyone wants to be considered wise. We all do. Now, King Solomon, he instructs in Proverbs 4 that we should get wisdom. I love that verse. Get wisdom. And you're reading this, I want wisdom. And the instruction is to get it. Okay, how do I get it? You make it a top priority in your life. You make it a top priority. You take advantage of the means that God provides. You go to him sincerely in prayer. You make it a top priority in your life. That is instruction in getting wisdom. But he also, Solomon tells us, to get insight, which could be taken as get understanding. So... James is in keeping with good company when he exhorts the need for wisdom and understanding. 
He writes, who is wise and understanding among you? He asks this question in verse 3. Now, knowing whom he's been uh, writing about, dealing with, knowing the, the things that he has heard from afar and he wishes to address in his letter, people have asserted themselves in certain ways. Who is wise and understanding among you? He asks. There were a number of persons who clamored to make claims of possessing a wisdom that should make others want to follow them. They did in the assemblies into which James wrote. But apparently many were confused. Many were confused about what it means to be wise and understanding. Uh, that is to possess it and to live it out. How do we know this? Again, because of the many errors in thought and, and practice the sins that he's already addressed in his letter. And many of them have been guilty of practicing. Um, even some of those who aspired to teach, as we saw in verse 1 of chapter 3. Being hearers only. Being hypocritical to their confession. You know, sins of partiality, which he talked about. You know, a doubting faith. Unbridled tongues, etc. You know, guilty of errors that demonstrated foolishness and short-sightedness rather than the true wisdom and understanding that so many claim to have. They needed to be corrected on this, just like they desperately needed to understand where good gifts come from. Wisdom and understanding are true compatriots. One does the informing, one does the directing. They go together well. And wisdom, and wisdom is it's not just a collection of knowledge. Many think that that's all that wisdom is. How much you can get into your head and then spew out of your mouth as accurately as possible. If that's all it is, if that's all that is happening, then this type of knowledge is one that the Bible describes as puffing up. A wisdom, which is really a knowledge that just puffs up. Making that person prideful. Such a prideful collection of knowledge that only tends to come from a heart of curiosity. Not one that is full of love. There is no follow through to a general application of this knowledge that they've amassed. So in this passage, we see the apostle asserting two types of wisdom. True wisdom and false wisdom. You can't get more binary and separate than that. A true and a false wisdom. He pits them against each other. Now he doesn't deny that the world does have a wisdom to offer. It certainly does. But what he does is expose the ultimate goal of each type of wisdom. So we need to be aware of this just as much as James's original audience. Because like most other things that are worldly in nature, it can infect the lives of believers. You know, making them less effective for the kingdom, uh, kingdom of Christ. This, this worldly wisdom. Being confused about it. And not only impacting the church and impacting the kingdom Christ but even personally we must never forget that we are still being saved now, I'm not speaking from an evangelical sense of being saved a brother talked well this morning about the fact that we are completely saved in Christ we are no longer condemned in our sin completely saved from eternal damnation in Christ. But until we die, or the Lord comes back to get us, we still have this sin nature plaguing us, our flesh. This, it's the same thing that motivated Paul to cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Sometimes we think the answer 
is a very practical answer. That could be a worldly answer. You know, sometimes the worldly wisdom seems right to us because the world receives it so well. It acknowledges it. It seems to be a, a practical solution to, to many of our problems, this worldly wisdom. And uh, a worldly wisdom and a, a godly wisdom can be very similar. They can appear to be very similar at times. But again, their, their goals are always different. And actually, as we may see in the text, their sources are certainly different. You know, those who James questions as being wise and understanding, uh, he challenges them to show what type of wisdom it is that they have. It must be shown by action. Uh, to, to put a flip on a popular phrase, we can say that wisdom is as wisdom does. And so as we read, godly wisdom is seen in a person's good conduct. That's what he says in verse 13. It can be seen in a person's good conduct, seen in the way the person behaves in all sorts of situations. And its results are a product of a meekness of wisdom. That is a wisdom characterized as humble, gentle, peaceable. Its goal, godly's wisdom, true wisdom's goal is peace and righteousness. Like the peace that we have received in being reconciled to God and Christ's righteousness which clothes us. Have you, beloved, have you been seeking the same wisdom that the world seeks? Or a wisdom that is meek and gentle? According to our text, we must do two things. First, first, we must examine ourselves in light of what wisdom's goal is not. What it's not. It is not the same that which the world values as wisdom. And number two, we must pursue what is true regarding wisdom's goal. What is true. And that is that which is God-fearing and peaceable. These goals are different. It's what separates them among their sources as well. In verses 14 through 16, James lays out the reality of an ungodly false wisdom. That's where he starts with. He starts with talking about what we should be avoiding and be aware of. It's a wisdom that is valued by the world. It's disingenuous. Now, he exposes its reality by explaining a few things. He talks about its characteristics. Then he talks about the results of such a worldly wisdom. And then lastly, he talks about the source of worldly wisdom. These, these three things, the characteristics, the results, and its source. In verse 14, James characterizes false wisdom as coming from a heart that is overflowing with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. These things go together. Now, jealousy can actually be a good thing. We read that in Scripture. It can be a good thing when it's aimed in the right direction with the right motive. God describes himself as being jealous over Israel, doesn't he? He does. Meaning that he would not and does not suffer any rival. For example, idolatry. He does not suffer any rival to steal the affection of the ones that he loves. Thus we know God in this way was jealous over Israel. And he would eventually destroy the idols that stole Israel's heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, he speaks of having a divine jealousy over the church in Corinth, since it was he who betrothed them to Christ. There can be a good application of jealousy when it's aimed 
correctly and with the right motive. However, however, the bitter jealousy that James refers to in verse 14 is really a sinful envy. It's the jealousy or envy that is most commonly addressed in the New Testament. Because, let's be honest, that is the jealousy we most often practice and struggle with, rather. No, there is no redeeming quality of envy. It is a bitterness. This bitter jealousy he talks about, it is a bitterness. False wisdom is full of envy. Because its envy is what motivates its practitioner. That is its motivation. An envy, a bitter one. Envy is its own punishment. Think about it. It is its own punishment. Its victim truly believes that he is being wise. It's a worldly wisdom, but he, he certainly believes he's being wise. He, he pushes himself in vain to achieve world's recognition. You know, to possess what the next guy and the next guy has. Desiring ultimate praise for himself above all others. It doesn't want to share it with anyone. You see how it's this idea of de- desiring the affections and love, but in a sinful, ug- ungodly way. This man... However, he knows there is always someone better. There's always someone better at something. Someone's more gifted. There's more talents. Perhaps you could argue better opportunities. Who knows? There's always someone better. And there the bitterness begins to fester. There's no contentment. And this, beloved, is a great offense to God. It accuses him of poorly providing for his creation. It is most unfit for the child of God who has him as father and the Lord as king and master. This bitter jealousy, writes Solomon, it makes the bones rot. It will eat you away from the inside out. But it's what motivates him. It's what motivates him to a worldly success. Which makes sense that James couples it to a heart that's riddled with selfish ambition. See that? He says, do not, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. He, he commands, James commands this of the person who is practicing a false wisdom do not be do not boast and be false to the truth in other words don't put your confidence in such worldly wisdom and basically lie about the truth of what wisdom is and what wisdom does because it's not what you're doing true wisdom is always accompanied with humility you know check that for yourselves. True wisdom is always accompanied with humility. This, this meekness that James talks about at the very beginning. And boasting about one's wisdom is it's antithetical to what true wisdom does. It won't do that. In fact, the more, the more true wisdom is, the more meek and humble it is. You, you probably have seen it for yourself. You know, men displaying such a, a, a worldly wisdom. They are the type that are easily offended when their opinions are not as accepted as fact or the power is questioned in some way. A good example of this is found in the book of Esther with Haman, that great enemy of the Jews. It's a classic example, you know. I, I once worked for a man like this. It was very taxing. It was very taxing in, in my faith. You know, quick to anger is often a trait. However, this person may have mastered the skill of not easily revealing their anger. 
But it, it's there. Trust me, it's there. It's boiling underneath. Like the stingy man we read of in Proverbs 23, the, the envious inwardly calculates against everyone. Now, he may appear to be wise, but he only knows and does according to his own heart's intentions. Beloved, consider your own motivation for being wise. If your heart is harboring a selfish ambition to make a name for yourself in some way, maybe some small way, then wisdom that you will be utilizing, it won't be a true wisdom. It'll be a false wisdom. It will be misdirecting. Its source, it's not from God. In verse 15, James identifies as, uh, the source of false wisdom. It, it's not from above. It's, it's not like the good gifts that God gives to his children, which come down from above from the Father of lights. James already talked about this. It comes from three typical sources. So here we're going to talk about the sources of false wisdom. And they're being described here as earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So first, false wisdom has as its source a way of perceiving things from the world's perspective. You know, you can think of earthly as worldly. You can even write that above the word in your Bible. Heaven's delights, the delights of heaven that we will enjoy someday, those delights, they evade this sort of wisdom. Things heavenly are, are boring. They're restrictive. It's earthly. It's worldly. Second, false wisdom comes from that which is unspiritual. It is natural in its origin. It is natural in its origin. Think of unspiritual as fleshly. You can write that above your word in your Bible. Fleshly. It is opposed to that which is spiritual because it comes from a source where the spirit is dead. It's not alive. It's, it's akin to the, to the unregenerate nature of man. This unspiritual source. And then third, false wisdom comes from that which is demonic. It is devilish. Of the devil. It is. It says it right here. The source of such wisdom is hell itself, just like, just like the unbridled tongue that James talked about earlier. This type of wisdom does not resist the devil, no. It's largely, in fact, ignorant of the devil's schemes. Its hellish source is what makes it unspiritual. It's opposed to the Spirit of God himself. It's what makes it worldly. The God of this world approves of it. It's what makes it worldly. When put into practice, it will destroy a family. It will destroy the individual, it will destroy the family, as well as the church and society at large. It is impatient, it's harsh. And it will do whatever it takes to exert its own desires over anyone who stands in its way. That is a worldly wisdom. Some men are very good at being calculated with it. To as not to appear so offending and so harsh. But again, what's the motivation there? What is its goal? It's a selfish ambition. It's envy. Like the lust of the eyes that plague natural man, the goal of worldly wisdom is to acquire more of what the world offers. I want more of that that I see. 
I can't have enough of it. How can I get it? What's the quickest, surest way of getting it? And like the lust of the flesh, this wisdom is sensual and natural. It's crude. It's brutish. Its goal is more of what consumes the flesh. And like the pride of life that haunts mankind since the fall, it comes to that fiend whose original sin was his pride and cast him down. Its goal is to serve its master, Satan. It is hellish in its source. Mankind, even some professing Christians, would rather not discuss such things. Not to go into such detail and break this down. This is a reality. They would rather ignore into believing that it doesn't even exist. That it's really a fairy tale. There's only one wisdom, they would say. There's no, no true and false wisdom. The God of this world has blinded their minds. But the threat is real. This is reality. It is what we have to deal with in the flesh every day. The wisdom of the world that seems so right at times serves only its true master. And it's not, it's not God. And where such worldly wisdom is put into use, where it's employed, it results in all kinds of sins. In verse 16, James spells out the results of such an enchanting yet false wisdom. Disorder in every vile practice, he writes. That's the result. Where there is smoke, there is fire. When jealousy and selfish ambition are behind the scenes motivating its actor, then you are sure to see vile results. You can truly tie every downward spiraling epic of mankind to men employing a worldly wisdom. It's only interested in the results, the, the ends justifying the means. It is cruel. It is disorderly. It is rebellious. Friend, if, if this is the wisdom you suspect that you have been seeking and using, then you have only one remedy. It is Christ. It is the gospel of Christ. His good news. It is the person of Christ himself. If you are a believer and you suspect that you have been trying to use a worldly wisdom far too much, then repent and confess a likely spiritual laziness that has led you to seek the wide and open path of the world, the easy path that the world offers for your problems. You know, seek the forgiveness that your heavenly Father freely offers and rejoice in it. And don't let it drag you down. Press onward, as Paul writes. Rejoicing in your salvation. You are no longer condemned. Enjoy living in the light of the gospel. But remember it. Confess your sins. He is faithful to forgive. The cross of Christ remains to be your only rescue. Look to it and remember the good that God has bestowed upon you and the promises of refuge and strength, his strength. The good King Asa, one of the kings of Judah, he enjoyed decades of peace. Why? Because he sought the Lord. He sought the Lord as the solution to the problems of the kingdom. 
but. And for decades, they enjoyed this peace. But in his old age, he had become too comfortable. He had become spiritually lazy. He looked to mankind to solve the kingdom's problem in his old age. He looked to what the world said he should do. And the result was a loss of peace in that kingdom. Wars ensued for the remaining days of his life. Even his body became diseased. Became too comfortable. Let down his guard. Spiritually lazy. A man's spiritual laziness will cast him upon a bed of comfort and ease trying to avoid conflict and distress at any cost, employing more and more of the world's tactics to supplement his craving for affluence, only to find himself later in life as as unprepared for heaven as those five foolish virgins who took no oil with their lamps. If, friend, if you are not a believer, if you have never believed upon Christ, then your remedy is the same. It is Christ himself and in his gospel. You have been acting and believing as you only could. Acting and believing as a sinner. For that you are. Sin has owned you. It has enslaved you. It is a cruel taskmaster. It lies to you. You could not even see that there was another path. You have served the devil's bidding unbeknownst. You have lived in ignorance. All men have their same beginning in this dreadful spot. All men. But God has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to take on the flesh of man, to suffer on behalf of man. He never once sinned against the law of God, of which you have despised in your heart. And to complete his suffering, he died a cruel, shameful death on a cross. The Bible tells us that by his wounds, we have been healed. That is for those who receive Christ freely, as he offers himself freely. He offers eternal life, which begins the moment you receive him as Lord. No longer a slave to sin in the world's ways, but made free to not sin. You only need to believe upon Christ himself. Believe who he has testified to be in the Bible. The Son of God in the flesh of mankind. The second person of the Trinity. Believe that he died in your place. Suffering the penalty of your sin, of your sin, which is death. He died in your place. He gladly, he willingly has done this because of the great love he has for his church, his bride, his people. He has done this to bring everlasting peace to the poor sinner by reconciling him to God. Believe that he lay dead in his tomb and that three days later he was rose and risen from the grave and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. Believe on Christ, dear sinner. And turn away from practicing sin. Forsake all sin and follow Christ every day. That is 
your remedy. Caught in this cycle of trying to have more and more in this world. That is what it truly means to fear God. And it is the true beginning to possessing a godly true wisdom. Beloved, there is such astonishing hope for us as we pursue God's kingdom first in our lives. And possessing a godly wisdom is at the top of that list. Which brings me to my final point. That we must pursue what is true. True regarding wisdom's goal. Which is that which is God-fearing and peaceable. That is true wisdom's goal. Whatever it is that God instructs in his word, those things that are God-fearing and peaceable. Just like he laid out his description of false wisdom, worldly wisdom, he also does the same thing regarding true and godly wisdom. But he, he changes the, the order a bit. With false wisdom, he first explained its character, then its source. And then, of course, the result of all these sinful and disorderly things. But with true wisdom, he first explains, starting in verse 17, its source, and then its character, and finally its result, because it starts with God from above. It starts with him. It starts with him. That's why he's, I suspect he's starting here with its source. So let's walk through this. First, the source of true wisdom. Like the source of all good gifts, James earlier mentioned, it comes from above, from God. He is good. He is all-powerful and full of love. His gifts Brothers and sisters are a reflection of this goodness. Amen. And one of those gifts is a heavenly, true, godly wisdom that will not put us to shame. As opposed to the false wisdom that comes from hell itself, ultimately destroying. It's disordering of things. Lying to a person, telling him that which is true, that's what you believe is true, is whatever it is that makes you happy. Such a lie. In verse 17, this wisdom from above, James describes the character. It's another list that we see here. And its list is in order of priority. Take note of that. He starts with pure. True wisdom is pure, he writes. It is a cleanliness that is seen both in the heart of man who possesses it and it's seen in his life, in the way he lives it out. Sin does not infect it. It's not blotted by sin, not in the least bit. It is pure Neither word or deed of it has been compromised by sin. It is moral cleanliness. cleanliness. Worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom at best, is intellectual. At best, it's intellectual. Now that's of course, that's not a bad thing in itself. But when intellectual wisdom is the hope and trust of its owner instead of Christ, then it misdirects, it misleads. You're believing all sorts of things. Darwinism. The craziness that the world is espousing today. The purity of true wisdom avoids defilement. It even avoids apparent defilement. It's concern about what may be perceived as sinful. You know, often the way that wise, true wisdom is carried out is understanding the needs of the weaker brother. 
who may be misdirected as you enjoy certain freedoms, yet that weak brother still struggles with. You're not going to know that practicing a worldly wisdom. It's only a godly, true wisdom where that is put to use. Why does James put purity on the list first? Why does he say first pure? Well, one, perhaps the chief reason, I believe, is that the leaven of sin would spoil the whole lot of it. It would wreck it all. Even if one spot were allowed to stain it, it would then become suspect and lose credibility. This is a chief distinguishing characteristic of true wisdom apart from false wisdom, this purity. And while the best of a false wisdom stops at some sort of intellectual progress, true wisdom is primarily ethical. It is most concerned with what is right and wrong in accordance with God's law than it is concerned with practical matters. You know, the very next characteristic that James puts on his list is that wisdom is from above is peaceable. It is peaceable. Just like Christ, who is the wisdom of the Father, is our peace. It is peaceable. As Puritan Thomas Manton notes, Heaven's great plan was to make peace between two of the greatest enemies, God and sinful man. Now this peace that we enjoy from heaven, being reconciled to the God of heaven. It is a peaceable spirit that truly reflects wisdom from above. And just think about it. When... When has jealousy or selfish motives ever sought the good of someone else? It never has. By definition, it's opposed to peace. It's opposed to putting other people ahead. Envy and selfish ambition. At best, false wisdom seeks a personal peace. A personal peace. But friends, that's nothing more than trying to avoid trials. There's no wisdom in trying to remove all trials in your life. God uses those. They come from him. In world's way of thinking, in the false wisdom, you're going to be misdirected and not taking advantage of these trials that God puts in your lives. True wisdom's peacefulness helps to mend conflict that sometimes, let's be honest, makes trials more challenging when you try to be a peacemaker. But truth, truth is never sacrificed. Truth is never sacrificed for the sake of peace. That's why it's second on the list. It's subordinate to purity. True wisdom, he writes... In his list, it's gentle, which is to say it's humble, it's meek. James began his teaching by making note of this defining aspect of wisdom's impact on a man's conduct, on his behavior, that it's a meekness of wisdom. True wisdom is open to reason. It's not closed-minded. It's not so stubborn that it won't listen to reason. Rather, it's ready to be persuaded to what is good and true in humility. The King James has it as easy to be entreated. Easy to be entreated. Now, this doesn't assume that a person blessed with godly wisdom is a pushover. He isn't like that character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, pliable. That, that early pilgrim who went along with him in as soon as he got to the slough of despond, he turned back. He's not a pushover. He's not wavering like that, being open to reason. 
James says open to reason. He doesn't say open to the first thing or the last thing that comes along. When deceit is directed at the Christian possessing true wisdom, it is his reasoning in the scriptures by the Spirit of God that helps him in that time. True wisdom is full of mercy and full of good fruits. You know, wisdom is more what it does than what it is. It is a doer. It's not just a hearer. And mercy governs its works. It's covered in that mercy. It's full of mercy. There are times when mercy picks up where justice leaves off. And when it comes to the fellowship of the saints, mercy toward one another is an evidence of a changed heart. It is aware of its own failings and the mercy it has received itself. So it is ready to dispense it when love calls for it. Lastly, true wisdom is also impartial and sincere. It values man according to God's standards of love. It acknowledges Christ in every believer in every believer and the image of God in every man. It has a keen sense of justice made incorruptible by its sincerity. It is impartial and sincere, this true wisdom from above. Now, true wisdom is all of this, and its goal is peace and righteousness. James writing to a church struggling over quarrels, which we'll get to the next time I'm up here, struggling over quarrels, over rank, struggling over a worthless religion. They needed to hear God's counsel, instruction on on what true wisdom looks like, how it behaves, what it does. Once again, the peacemaker whom Christ exalted in the Beatitudes. That peacemaker takes center stage once again. You know, what we sow in this life, we reap in the next. I'm sure you've heard that before. So the good works done in heavenly wisdom, they're not lost. They're not lost. They'll sprout up again, these seeds that we sow. As the preacher said, In Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Beloved, consider this, that whatever you do unto the Lord is good seed. Good seed being sown. The wisdom of the world, it counts it as lost. But God promises that the Christian will find it again. It will reap. God will multiply it. You will do as he writes in verse 18. See a harvest of righteousness. Of these seeds being sown. God will multiply it. You don't lose by serving God. You don't lose by serving God ever. And it takes wisdom from above to know this and to apply it. All right. I'm going to close. Here's a, a quote from Manton. I think he puts it very well. Commenting on verse 18. Righteous peacemaking is blessed with grace here and glory hereafter. You know, this, this verse is a promise as well as it is instruction. This is our comfort against all the difficulties, all the inconveniences that holy efforts at peace meet with in the world. 
Your reward is with God, beloved. And you have a pledge of it in your own souls. The very Spirit of God has put that seal upon your hearts. And while conflict, it lessens grace in other people, for you, you grow and thrive. Because blessed are the peacemakers, Christ says. You shall reap in glory. Brothers and sisters, examine yourselves in light of what wisdom's goal is not. It is not the same that which the world values as wisdom. This world sees the cross of Christ as utter foolishness. Why would someone do that? What a display of weakness that is, worldly wisdom says. It's survival of the fittest. That's our motto. The spoils go to the strong. But that's not God's plan. From Cain's jealousy to Rome's ambition, today's personal peace and affluence, mankind's natural position is self-centered and it is rebellious. It is disordered. God's plan is to reconcile a people unto himself and utterly save them to the utmost. And our trek through this world requires wisdom from God above to navigate sin's pitfalls. This wisdom, brothers and sisters, this wisdom is is just a sincere prayer away from us. Just one prayer away, one sincere prayer away from us. Jesus will have you go to him daily. He will have you pursue him daily. See your need of him daily. You must pursue what is true regarding wisdom's goal, that which is God-fearing and peaceable. A veritable harvest of righteousness awaits the wise saint.